You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, a deadly train collision in Greece kills at least 36 people. We'll get the latest. Then... While other media outlets are gleefully covering the Dominion election story as a seminal gotcha moment that could turn the tide against Fox News, the reality is something different. We look into allegations that presenters on the right-leaning populist Fox News channel continued reporting facts they knew to be untrue. We'll get a business roundup and we'll shine the spotlight on the latest culture news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. At least 36 people have been killed in Greece when two trains collided last night. 350 people are thought to have been on board a passenger train which collided with a freight train in what's been described as Greece's deadliest rail incident in years. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Constantine Buhea, who's an author and a Greece expert, and from Athens by the journalist Lydia Emanalidou. Constantine, if we could start with you, this tragedy happened last night. That coincides with one of the most joyous festivals in Greece. Indeed, it's carnival time. So you can imagine carnival time means students. Students take a day off, they make, they dress up, they go walk down the streets, hug, sleep at each other's places, um, sing. The families also get together. Um, and they have special meals, special dishes. The whole, all of Greece participates in that. It is peak happiness time. The students were returning afterwards to their university, which means they were taking the night train, which is the cheapest train, and that is when the tragedy occurred. And Lydia, exactly where did this crash take place? Uh, so this crash, um, uh, th- this crash uh, happened. Uh, it was, you know, a train that was going from from Athens, leaving the Greek capital, to Thessaloniki up north. Uh, this train left around um, seven thirty in the evening, as as your guest just said. It was full of passengers, and then shortly before midnight, it collided with a a, a train, a cargo train, heading uh, in the in the opposite uh, direction, about halfway through halfway through its its destination and what we've heard from people who were aboard was that you know this this sent uh, it, it happened at such high speeds that essentially it's it sent some of the uh, rail cars spinning through the air some of them caught on flames and we have heard harrowing stories from people who were on board you know basically tumbling in the flames uh, doing everything they can to, ex- to to escape smashing through windows so uh, it's a really tragic day here here in Greece and Constantine what's the historical significance Significance of the crash site? Um, well, it's a gorge, and it's the, in, in order to go from southern Greece to northern Greece, you have to go through that gorge. Therefore, historically, there have been major battles with the Ottoman Turks, with the Germans, with the Italians, and this Greek civil war. And it's also a location, I'm afraid, where there's quite a few uh, car crashes have taken place in the past. So it, it's a key location in Greece, and the accident has cut Greece in two. Mm. Lydia, as you were saying, we are beginning to see reports of witness testimony from survivors. Uh, you've told us a little bit about them fleeing from the flames. Can you give us some more ideas of what type of thing they're describing? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, as uh, as you've mentioned, you know, there were a lot of young people on on this train returning home, returning to the universities from uh, after the long weekend, the holiday weekend. And so uh, from what I have heard, it was a lot of the young people who were helping, um, you know, other uh, other people on, on, on the train uh, escape, get out. I've also heard reports of uh, people being essentially like flung uh, through the windows of some some rail cars because the collision happened at such high speed. Some people were found in nearby fields. Uh, and uh, we heard that it was passengers actually who were calling shortly before midnight after this collision happened. Passengers were calling uh, first responders to, to, try, to try and get help. Mm. Uh, Constantine, this has been described as the, the biggest tragedy in, in, in Greek rail for, for years and years and years. From that, one can deduce that actually the state of the railways is quite good. Would you agree? Well, the, after the Greek crisis, um, the rail network was cut, so there was no international uh, communications. Or there was um, many lines within Greece were stopped, and therefore one would expect a lot more care uh, to have gone into this single remaining line, major line in Greece. Apparently not, because what is coming out is that there was a signal failure. And not only was there a signal failure we hear, but it took 45 minutes for the authorities to locate where the accident had taken place, 45 minutes. And Lydia, is, is, is that, can you corroborate that? I mean, do we have a definite indication of the cause of the crash? Uh, I, I'm not sure that we have a, a definite indication yet. What I've been hearing is that the the two the two trains appear to have been on the same track, on the same line, traveling in opposite directions toward each other. Uh, Greek media this morning were, were reporting that this went on for a full 12 minutes before the before the collision. So the trains were traveling towards each other at high speeds for several minutes. Uh, I haven't been able to independently verify that, but of course, if if that turns out to be the case, that brings up a lot of questions about command and control operations and the the safety of the railway system, which, you know, people, journalists here and other people have been um, saying for years now that it's that it's been neglected mm-hmm. and that there have been safety issues. Uh, Constantine, if it is human error, what have the authorities said about punishment for those responsible? Um, well, f- my feedback is that it hasn't been very helpful because what the authorities came out with is that those who are responsible will have life. They'll go life imprisonment. This immediately shuts up any potential contributor um, or witness from the uh, from the rail system because they don't want to be involved, implicated. They don't want the finger being pointed at them. In other words, when you don't know the causes of the of an accident and you jump in with um, in life imprisonment, then you are putting off an awful lot of people from contributing um, to, to the resolving this tragic event. Mm. Uh, Lydia, you were talking about how the Greek press are reporting it, and I wonder well, how the emergency services responded and if they've been lauded for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, so far they have been at least on on Greek media. I heard uh, on 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 one of the TV channels this morning that some of the firefighters who who showed up to the scene of the the crash may have been, you know, some of the same people who were helping out in neighboring Turkey uh, after the earthquake uh, recently. Uh, but I think you know the effect of this of the response and and how quickly and how thoroughly it happened. We'll we'll find out more about that in in the coming days. 
disease. Uh, right now, though, there are people, uh, you know, the, the deceased and people who are injured, and there are dozens of them, have been taken to nearby hospitals. And uh, family and loved ones have been have been showing up there. And we've been hearing some, uh, you know, harrowing stories from there, too, of, of loved ones showing up to find out that their, uh, you know, their family members have perished in this mm-hmm. crash. Uh, Constantine, Greece is holding an election in April. Will this become a political issue? Definitely. Um, the Minister for Infrastructure and Transport is Kostas Karamanlis, who is the former Greek Prime Minister and the one who led Greece into the crisis. And he is considered to be a rather ineffective and uh, many say not particularly useful minister as he is now and that he got the post because of his name, his uh, uncle was the president and prime minister. Therefore, since he belongs to the ruling party, this may have repercussions on the um, on the elections. And mm. uh, Lydia, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the mood there today and how the tragedy will be marked. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, already the the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis visited the site earlier today. The Greek government announced a period of mourning for several days until March March. Uh, uh, March 3rd. Uh, and he said, you know, there will be a thorough investigation. And really, the mood here today is is really somber. This is, of course, the, uh, the, the number one story, not just in Greece, but uh, in many countries uh, internationally. Uh, and there hasn't been, uh, it, it's, it's been many years since we've had uh, such a tragic event. So the mood here is somber. And, you know, this is, I should note that this um, uh, this train uh, ride from Athens, from the Greek capital to the Saloniki. Uh, this is one. Uh, this is a train ride I've done many, many times. M- most people I know have have taken this train, uh, and so this, you know, many people can resonate. Uh, it, this resonates with many people, and many of us, you know, know people who are affected or know people who know people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And Constantine, I understand you actually had a, a, a relative on the train. Um, there's a relative who was she was a, stu- she's a student, 20 years old, and she was heading to Thessaloniki. She hasn't been affected. She was at the rear carriages. Um, but it has been impossible to contact people because every, of course, half of Greece is calling the other half to find out f- for these news. So the lines are jumping, I'm afraid. Thank you so much, Constantine. That's Constantine Buhaya and uh, Lydia Emanandalidou in Athens. Now, here's Marcus Hippie with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Bola Tinubu has been declared the winner of Nigeria's disputed presidential election. The 70-year-old politician gained 36% of the vote, extending the ruling all-progressives Congress Party's control over Africa's most populous nation. Mr Tinubu's key opponents, Peter Obi and Atiku Abubakar, have rejected the results, calling for a fresh poll to be held. FBI Director Christopher Rapp has acknowledged that the Bureau believes COVID-19 was likely the result of a lab accident in Wuhan. It's the first public confirmation of the FBI's classified assessment of the virus. The greater scientific community still believes that COVID emerged naturally. And Danish lawmakers have voted to abolish a springtime public holiday in order to boost defence spending. Savings from the holidays scrapping are estimated at around 3 billion kroner or over 400 million euros annually. Those are the day's headlines. Now back to you, Georgina. 
Thank you, Marcus. The US media outlet Fox News has been in the headlines for the past few weeks over claims that its hosts did not believe Donald Trump's claims of widespread fraud in the 2020 US election, but continued to air the allegations anyway. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has been looking into whether the scandal will cause any lasting damage for the country's most popular news network. You may have heard by now that the U.S. media outlet Fox News is facing a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit by Dominion. The company makes electronic voting machines that some of Donald Trump's associates, notably the lawyer Sidney Powell and, to a slightly lesser extent, Rudy Giuliani, argued had been rigged in the 2020 election. One of its most characteristic features is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden. You've also probably heard that Dominion last week began releasing batches of depositions, internal emails and text messages from Fox News hosts, suggesting they did not believe the electoral fraud claims, but peddled them on air in the aftermath of the 2020 election anyway. Of course, you won't hear any of this from Fox News itself, bar this brief statement on Sunday from one of its own hosts, Howard Kurtz. Some of you have been asking why I'm not covering the Dominion voting machines lawsuit against Fox involving the unproven claims of election fraud in 2020, and it's absolutely a fair question. I believe I should be covering it. It's a major media story, given my role here at Fox. But the company has decided that as part of the organization being sued, I can't talk about it or write about it, at least for now. Kurtz hosts a weekend show called Media Buzz so you can understand why he's upset about the lack of coverage. But while other media outlets are gleefully covering the Dominion election story as a seminal gotcha moment that could turn the tide against Fox News, the reality is something different. For one thing, Fox News maintains the highest ratings of any news network. Just in the past week, two of its talk shows, its midday show called The Five, and its evening host Tucker Carlson, outperformed just about everything on TV, except for the NBA All-Star Basketball game. And before you think that the Dominion lawsuit may have tempered Fox News' rhetoric, think again. Even as Fox News swerved away from accusing Dominion, it shifted into spinning a media narrative instead. Here's Tucker Carlson on November 19th, 2020. Everything in this country depends on fair elections. And it's obvious even now that we don't have them. When access to basic information is restricted and weaponized by a partisan billionaire class, and it is, you can't have a fair election. By definition, it is not possible. Google and Facebook are far greater threats to our system than Russia has ever been, and we need to fix that immediately. Even more bizarre, though, is the ongoing rhetoric that the January 6th, 2021 attack on the US Capitol building was somehow orchestrated. This conspiracy theory is a particular favorite of Tucker Carlson. Those events apparently were at least in part organized and carried out in secret by people connected to federal law enforcement. It's hard to think of a bigger potential scandal than this one. Now it's clear why the government won't release more than 14,000 hours of surveillance footage shot at the Capitol that day. People they know are on the tape. And not only that, but Carlson and his staff have been handed exclusive access to hours of video of the attack on the Capitol by Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
Despite fears that the tapes could threaten the safety of Capitol Police and make the Capitol itself more vulnerable to attack, Tucker Carlson plans to release video in the coming weeks, no doubt selectively chosen to prove his point, that the whole thing was orchestrated to make Trumpian conservatives look bad. There is research on conspiracy theories. Studies have found that even if a story is untrue and actively debunked, people tend to remember the story itself rather than the debunking of it. That obviously holds doubly true when you have a major television host peddling these conspiracy theories daily. But there is one bit of promising research I like to keep in mind for stories like these. Studies suggest that if you agree with somebody on a conspiracy theory, they're more likely to believe it when you debunk a different one. Say, I'll give you that Sasquatch is real if you stop telling me about the fake moon landing. It's a tactic that even Tucker Carlson seems to agree with. Here he is again on November 19th, 2020, going to exceedingly great lengths on the day he flipped on Sidney Powell and demanded proof of her claims that the voting machines had been rigged. Now, to be perfectly clear, we did not dismiss any of it. After four years, this may be the single most open-minded show on television. We literally do UFO segments, not because we're crazy or had even been interested in the subject, but because there is evidence that UFOs are real and everyone lies about it. In other words, I'll give you UFOs if you can just go with me on the whole Sidney Powell is lying to you thing. So when it comes to any listeners out there who believe Tucker Carlson's current claim that January 6th was a myth, let me try this. I'll give you that many of the people who protested that day, and even many of those who entered the Capitol building, were in over their heads. They didn't really have plans to overthrow the government and probably didn't even expect to wander into the Capitol until its barriers were breached by a smaller, more radical group of orchestrators up front. I'll even give you that many people on that day believed they were doing the right thing. I'll give you those points if you give me this. January 6th was the direct result of a fundamental lie, perpetrated by Donald Trump and his allies, that the 2020 election was mass-rigged against him. But don't take my word for it. What Powell was describing would amount to the single greatest crime in American history. Millions of votes stolen in a day. Democracy destroyed the end of our centuries-old system of self-government. Not a small thing. And this is a man who believes in UFOs. Just think about that the next time you watch Fox News. Its own hosts just might be selling you something they don't actually believe in themselves. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Jermack. Chris, many thanks. But really, Sasquatch is real? I would say we haven't found it yet. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear 
insider insights, and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. back with a briefing on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin and we'll continue with the day's biggest business stories now. Joining me on the line is Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Victoria, many thanks for coming on the show. Now, we're getting very strong economic data from China's manufacturing sector. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Because it sparked sharp gains for stocks in Hong Kong overnight. Yeah, that's right. We're seeing major gains overnight in the Hang Seng, which is the Hong Kong stock market, up more than 4% after we had uh, a reading on the manufacturing sector in China known as the PMI index. Uh, Now, reading above 50 signals expansion and a reading below 50 is a contraction. And we saw it rise to 51.6 in February, which was sharply above analysts' expectations. And the official manufacturing MBI hit the highest level since March of 2012. Now, we know that Beijing has been reversing its strict COVID-era lockdown measures, and that's released a wave of pent-up demand from the world's second largest economy. So this is having a positive impact on stocks, not just in China, but also in London. We've seen miners like Anglo-American and Glencore, which are very sensitive to China, uh, trade higher. And we've also seen Burberry, which is another stock that is highly sensitive to China, uh, towards the top of the FTSE 100. And we're also seeing gains for oil prices on the back of this. So we've also had the latest data from Nationwide on the strength of the UK housing market with house prices is cooling year on year. So how is the housing market here in Britain holding up? Well, we saw that house prices fell by half a percent in February, which was a bit worse than analysts were expecting. And year on year, we saw house prices drop by 1.1 percent, swinging into negative territory versus again in January. So this is the first year-on-year fall for house prices that we've seen since June of 2020, which was, of course, at the height of the pandemic. And it was the biggest annual drop since 2012. Uh, The housing market in the UK has really been struggling under the weight of lacklustre economic growth, a softening consumer. There's been falling real wages because of inflation. And then, of course, rising mortgage rates as the Bank of England continues to raise interest rates. So we think that a lot of potential homeowners are are actually holding off for now before buying a house in anticipation that mortgage rates and house prices will cool sometime later this year. But on the flip side, there's a chronic chronic shortage of housing supply here in the UK. So that's actually stemming an even steeper slide in house prices. And finally, to the to the world of uh, luxury automobiles, Aston Martin Lagonda has reported its financial results for 2022. Mm, it looks like a significant full year on loss. That's right. We had a loss of £118 million pounds for 2022, growing from a loss of about £74 million pounds the previous year. But this was quite a bit better than analysts were expecting, which is part of the reason why we're seeing the stock trade higher today. 
Um, it's been struggling with cost inflation, like so many businesses. This has caused delivery delays. And there's also been supply chain issues post pandemic, again, like many businesses uh, have been dealing with. But given that the losses were more moderate, we have seen a sharp jump in the shares. And it also issued a rather optimistic outlook for this year and next. Excellent. Victoria, thank you very much indeed. That's Victoria Scholar there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And now to end the show, our red carpet correspondent, Laura Kramer, joins us with a wrap of culture news. You're looking very glamorous today, Laura. Uh, thank you. It's just for this, Georgina. Just uh, for you. Uh, well, And also from yesterday. So yesterday we had the most wonderful photo shoot, didn't we? Yes, we did. So we took some photos at TBC. People will see them shortly. Yes. It was so much fun to get dressed up and play around on the photo set, wasn't it? It was just absolutely lovely. But we, however, don't do that for a living. The people that, that, uh, that you report on do. Uh, but before we get on to the glamour of the red carpet, let's talk about a carpet of, of land, really, a, a corridor, an unused corridor. Uh, and it's uh, an extraordinary um, explosion. That I, that's probably not, not a very bad word to use in this country. <laughs> an explosion of wildlife because uh, no humans are there. That's right. So we are seeing new images that have been released of this wildlife sanctuary that has kind of come in Korea's demilitarized zone. So it's a project by Google Arts and Culture, and they sent in these unmanned vehicles to take photos. Imagine like, you know, the Google Street View kind of. Um, And it marks 70 years since the Korean Armistice Agreement. And it's this area between North and South Korea where people aren't really allowed to go. And because there are no people, People, wildlife has flourished and there are now more than 6,000 different species of flora, animals, plants, and it's really exciting. We're just starting to see these images coming out. But of course, there's a problem because a lot of that, I and mean, the humans aren't there because it's mined. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I hope no bears or anything step on anything and get hurt <laughs> in the meantime. But yeah, the cameras have captured, for example, the Asiatic ba- black bear for the first time in 20 years. We're seeing it. And yeah, like I said, more than 6,000 species. It's a very exciting project, and people can view this area that they can't, you know, access online. Mm. There's, I mean, there's a whole other conversation to be had here about Google and privacy. <laughs> I told my family I'd give up smoking and Google Earth when you bring it up on the map where I live is me sitting outside having a first. You've got to be very careful with that. <laughs> you got now, uh, let's go to the Olivia Award nominations. They're uh, released last night. Uh, some exciting names there. That's right. International faces that people will recognize. Jodie Comer is uh, up for Best Actress in Prima Facie, as, lo- as well as Tom Hollander, Paul Mescal, Rafe Spall. They're all up for Best Actor, as is Giles Terrera. Now, people will probably recognize him most. He's already an Olivier Award winner for uh, his role in Hamilton in London. He is now up for Best Actor for Blues for an Alabama Sky at the National Theatre. I did not catch it, but I heard he's amazing. He is amazing. And, you know, that's probably because he's originally, or his parents are originally from Zimbabwe. And he trained at the same drama school as me. He went to Mount View. Uh, But he is an extraordinary actor, isn't he? 
Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, he's got some pretty big competition. Paul Mescal, for example, is also up for an Oscar that's coming up uh, this month. So, yeah, it, it'll be exciting to see what happens. The Olivier's have a very interesting, you know, London does theater very, very well. So when Cinderella didn't do incredibly, Andrew Lloyd Webber said, you know, it's not like Broadway in London, where musicals tend to do better. But at the same time, in the theater scene in London, oftentimes sees projects migrating uh, across the pond to Broadway. Prima Face, for example, Jodie Comer did that on Broadway as well. So it does tend to show what are the up-and-coming theater projects uh, around the world. Mm. Let's go now to Cannes and the Film Festival Jury. Uh, exciting news about the head of that. That's right. So the Swedish filmmaker Ruben Oslund has been named the jury president of the Cannes Film Festival. Now, he is the one who won the Palme d'Or last year, and he's won it before as well. So he is now the third two-time winner of the Palme d'Or to be jury president. And, fun little fact, it's going to be 50 years after another fellow Swede, Ingrid Bergman, uh, presided over the pre- uh, over the jury. So it's very exciting. He's... I, I, Have you seen his films? By chance. Okay, so he really loves to make the audience a little bit uncomfortable. He likes to challenge them. And and speaking about, you know, the Triangle of Sadness, which, by the way, is up for three Oscars coming up. uh, He also talked about his upcoming film, which is called The Entertainment System is Down. And it's about a a long flight that... the entertainment system goes down and modern humans have to do this awful thing where they're just left alone with their thoughts and no entertainment. <laughs> oh, terrible. I know, but in it, he said he's going to include this five-minute scene in which a young boy asks his older brother to share his iPad and he has to wait five minutes for it. And the audience will have to sit through that entire period. And he said he wants people to walk out. He wants them to feel that discomfort and impatience. So, yeah, he loves to push boundaries and it'll be really exciting to see what, what he brings to yeah, the I'm table. I'm feeling the discomfort and impatience and frankly, I'm walking out right now. So that's it for this show. Thank you very much to Laura Kramer uh, and to our producer, Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.